Good morning and welcome to Church of the City. I'm really, really glad to be with you. Um, this is um, a, no- a morning that's a bit um, atypical, and you're probably aware of that. If you've been with us before, if you've never been here before, let me welcome you at Church of the City. Um, we, this morning, have the opportunity to, to be a bit of who we are, and here's what I mean by that. We have a set of values as a church, and I think most communities, most people have value systems, but most of the time it doesn't go articulated. So for us, we do our absolute best to try to get this out in front so we can, we can hear it, we can wrestle with it, we can know who we are. So one of our values as a church community is that we, we don't think it is healthy, nor is it by design what God had in mind when he was dreaming up what it would look like to be a community of faith wrapped up around him for us to be segmented, segmented and isolated in our generational groupings. And so for us as a church, um, one of the things we do on a semi-regular basis is we, we invite our children to come be a part, of, a part of our adult worship. And typically they're upstairs, you can hear them running around, um, but they're, they're isolated. And we do a lot of age-appropriate things with them and for them, but we wholeheartedly believe that it is important, valuable, and beyond that, there's just something good about being a church that's multi-generational, that's not isolated or segmented to one group of people. And so um, what we're going to do is we're going to spend some time around the scriptures now, and then we're going to take a break at the end of that. You can get coffee, there's some food in the back, and then we're going to ask you, if you have kiddos, to go get those kids um, out of our kids' ministry, and then we'll have a second set of worship at the end of our time together. Fair enough? Cool. Fair enough. Um, One of the things I want to bring to your attention is that at the end of this month, um, another value-driven aspect of who we are, we are, are going to do another Sunday where we're off-site, meaning we're not going to be here gathered in the ballroom. I want to get the date on your calendar. It's at the end of the month, um, on the 23rd, and we're just going to be serving in the city. Um, if you've been around Church of the City at all, we just we, we have this idea that's crazy, right? That God is a God who cares more about the people around us um, than he does about us having the most perfect gathering on a Sunday morning. And so we want to live out that system um, of values where we are going to um, go out of what's normal and typical and maybe comfortable and choose uh, to look around us and, like Jesus said, love our neighbors better than we love ourselves. Um, and so that particular Sunday, mark on your calendar. We're going to be meeting off-site down the street at Director's Park. We'll get you more details as that comes, but put that on your calendar Again, we're not going to be here at the ballroom that weekend, and I want you to know about that. On your seat, there's a white communication card. At some point, fill out that white communication card. At the end of the gathering, when we have our offering time, you can drop it in the bucket. It's just a good way for us to get in contact with you. You've got things going on. Man, I feel like a salesman. All these things I'm sharing with you right now. <laughs> Whew, deep breath. We, as a church, um, spend time around, around the scriptures, and we do it intentionally that we, we do believe, we do think that it is good for us, it is helpful for us to understand what God is up to. And one of the ways that we do that, one of the points of access we've got um, is, is the scripture. 66 books written over the span of about 1,500 years. People interacting with one another and with a God who created them in this, this place, this like contact patch between what God is doing and our human story. Now, a while ago, um, just a few months ago, we, uh, we took a journey through an Old Testament book called Esther. Um, and it was the first time really for us as a church where we, we dabbled with the Old Testament. Um, we are a fairly young church. Uh, we spend a lot of our time in the New Testament around particularly Jesus as he shows up on earth, puts on flesh and bones and walks among us in the dust of humanity. 
Um, but we have this, this bigger section, this bigger body of work called the Old Testament or the Old Covenant that really makes up about two-thirds of what we have in the Scriptures, close to three-quarters of what we have in the Scriptures. And for many of us as, as people who are even dabbling with figuring out who God is and maybe what he might want from us, maybe considering following Jesus, or those of us who have been following Jesus for some time, it's largely ignored in our lives. We, we don't spend a lot of time reading the Old Testament. In fact, I, I would venture to guess that this week, very few of you um, randomly chose some time in your life to go and open your Bible and look into the Old Testament. If you did, well done. I'll give you a star later. But the reality is, for most of us, that's just not typical. Um, because A, we don't understand it. B, it feels very far removed. And C, it, it really is a long time in the past. So what we're doing right now is we are, are setting um, some roots for ourselves in some of this Old Testament work. And one of the sections of the Old Testament is a section called the Writings. Um, and, and in the Writings, there's this, this massive collection of poetry. We call it the Psalms. And we're taking some time here to, to look at the Psalms uh, in order to, to try to understand what's going on in them, in order for us to grow a bit as humans, to, to open our perspective, to see a bit more of what it means to be human. And, and we've entitled this, this whole section, this whole series um, in Psalms that we're going to be in for about the next 10 or 12 years. Um, we entitled it, I, You Laugh, I'm Being Genuine, um, We'll take breaks. Uh, we're not going to do 12 years straight of the Psalms. Um, we're going to do the first 10 Psalms first, and then we'll set it aside for a while. Um, but it's going to take us some time to get through this. We're, we're, we're entitling this this concept of, of just hearing the voice of the ancients. The people are people are people, regardless of, of when they lived. And we, we have these like grandiose views of ourselves that we have somehow technologically arrived at a point in time when we're superior than the people before us. And the reality is that's just not true. The reality is, what you're going through today, people are going through 100 years ago, and people are going through 1,000 years before that, and 2,000 years before that. Humanity is humanity. Yes, particulars are different. Cultures, different situations are different. Yes. People are people. We've changed. Yeah. We've grown. There's more to think about. Absolutely. History um, builds up, and there's, there's more for us to consider at this point, culturally, in this moment. But the reality is, the things that people were dealing with thousand years ago, 2,000 years ago, in this case, 3,000 years ago, same things we're going through today. And there is, there is something when someone's soul can be put down in, in print, can be put down to communicate across the divide between one person to another, there is something about that recognition that we are people and that person was human. And their experience actually goes towards naming what's going on in my world, in my life, in my soul. And so that's our journey in the Psalms. Now, we're in the third Psalm. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it. If you don't, we'll provide it for you on the screen in just a moment. But let me, let me just frame this, this for you today. Like I've been saying, if you haven't been with us, I'll catch you up here real quick. But I'll remind you, if you've been here with us, um, the Psalms are a literary genre that we call poetry. Which again, like I have to breathe deep, it makes me want to gag. I'm not a big poetry fan. However, the reality of this is it's not based on my preferences or your preferences. This is a genre chosen by a few a few people who wanted to write and communicate what's going on in their world and their soul. Now, poetry um, has a very unique uh, framework to it. You understand that. 
Um, but this case in, in the Psalms, what we have is a very specific kind of poetry. It was written in a cultural context, written by a group of people um, and to a group of people who spoke a language called Hebrew. Now, Hebrew is an ancient Near East language um, and people group. And, and as such, that interplay between the people and the language, it was very different than, than it is for us. And so I need to illustrate this for you again. And this is so hokey, but it's the only way that I know how to do this, okay? Um, so what I need you to do is I need you to put your finger in your mouth and make a popping sound in just a moment. And we're going to do it all together. And if you can't, because you're just socially can't do that, um, that's okay, like legitimate. But I, this is one of the things I need you to do, okay? Just... Okay. On the count of three, as many of you who are willing to do it, please just humor me for a moment because it makes a great point, okay? So one, two, three. That was so good. I hope the recording picked that up because that was beautiful. All right. That idea right there, that, that thing you just did, um, it, it just encapsulates a moment. Man, you guys got to stop, all right? No, I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, it, it, you can do as many times as you want. It doesn't bother me, really. I have kids. I I'm distracted all the time anyway. Um, it, it encapsulates that idea of a, a point in time, a punctual thing. Now, as, as American um, thinkers, we're post-enlightenment. We, we like things to be neat and wrapped up. Um, we are largely driven by analysis and by, um, by things like, like science and rationality. And we like things to be isolated to a single event. And so one of the ways to do that is, is we, we, we try to have a beginning, a middle, and end of things, and we, we make it punctiliar. It's just a single thing, a single moment, a single pop in humanity. Now, the Hebrews, they didn't think of the world that way. Um, their, their view of the world was, was very different than that. Instead of being punctual and just a moment, something happened, and we move on from that, the Hebrews think and thought in circles, uh, they think in, in this ongoing motion of, of time, constantly churning and happening. And you participate in it by, by getting onto the circle, and the same kind of ideas, events, emotions, whatever, are just kind of continuing to roll. There isn't this, this, this point. Now, if you compare that picture um, of, of, of a circle or something going, you know, kind of churning on and on and on to a point in time, to a single thing, then you can see how this becomes problematic as time progresses. Because a point, as it progresses through time, it becomes a line. And we, we think in lines, typically, as American thinkers. We're linear thinkers, is what we say. We like that. We think of things moving in a direction, and we're comfortable with that, and it like, makes us feel safe. If we can sleep at night, things are good. Well, the Hebrew mind doesn't think that way. The Hebrew mind, thinking in these circles, as time progresses, it becomes a spiral, like a slinky that's being rolled out in front of you. And so you, you have these same ideas and same experiences and same feelings happening, repeatedly in different circumstances as you roll forward. And the reason I'm sharing this with you is because that is at the heartbeat of the Psalms. The attempt of the Psalms is not to lock in one moment of time, but it's, it's an attempt to say this moment happened and it, has a, it makes a difference over a long span of human experiences. That the circular nature of who we are as humans means that we'll revisit this kind of situation again. The problem is, as American thinkers, we actually don't think that way often. We may give nod to it. Yeah, kind of like an experience I had before. You know, a friend goes through something hard and we relate to them by telling me, yeah, I went through it before, I beat it, now I'm better than that now. The reality is, I think the Hebrew way of thinking about things is a bit more accurate. Yes, there's progress and progression, but there's repetition as well. Repetition of the same things. We, we go in circles. As American thinkers, we often feel badly about ourselves. 
when we have to deal with the same hardship, difficulty, or whatever over and over and over again. And the same thing keeps flaring up. Maybe it's a weakness we have. Maybe it's something that we're struggling with. Maybe it's something that we do to other people or something we do to ourselves. We really start beating ourselves up because we can't see ourselves on that line progressing. Well, the Hebrew thinker is thinking very different than that. It's saying we're maturing and growing and we are progressing, but we'll revisit these same things repeatedly. They may come up multiple times and come up in new ways with new maturity, new experience in order to help us understand what it is. The Psalms are written into that kind of emotion. And so this experience is a very specific moment in time that this particular Psalm was written. But the goal and the idea, I mean, just the, the subtext to it is that every human on earth will have similar experiences, will have similar emotions and feelings. We'll have to deal with the same issues over and over and over again that this Psalm addresses. And so when you walked in today, I gave you a piece of paper. Well, I didn't give it to you. I had other people give you a piece of paper. And I was ridiculed for giving a piece of paper out. I don't understand how there's ridicule behind giving a piece of paper out. I think it's because of the question mark, like, what do you do with a piece of paper? Well, obviously, guys, you write on it. That's going to be what you're going to do with it. One of the ways that we, I'm just making fun of you, and you probably didn't even make fun of me. Um, one of the things we're going to do today um, is we're going we're gonna, to, I'm going to try to apply a bit of an exercise to what, uh, what the Psalms are in an attempt to honor them for what they are. Like I've said a couple times already, um, because these are not uh, narratives, they're not law, they're not um, other literary genres, it's a bit more difficult for me to become um, all authoritative, here's what it means and what you've got to do with it, um, as we typically do in American teaching and preaching, um, because we think that way, we're rationalistic, and we like that kind of, uh, that kind of rhetoric. The Psalms, um, being poetry, are intended to be played with and reflected upon. And so today what we're going to do is we're going we're to take an exercise in that. Uh, there, are, there are five stanzas to this particular piece of poetry. And what I'd like you to do, we're going to th- read the whole thing here in just a second. Um, and I just want you to soak it in for a second. And then we're going to walk through it. And I, I am going to walk you through some of the meaning, what's going on, why this is happening. But as we go through each of the stanzas, I'm going to ask you to become reflective. I'm going to ask you to write down, jot down something that stands out in each of those different Stanza. So you can do this any way you want. Um, you can write one, two, three, four, five on your paper. You can draw lines. You can do whatever you want. But I would like you, if, you, if you're willing to, just humor me for a moment. I would like you to, to take the opportunity to become a reflective participant in understanding what these psalms are. So let's just read it real quick, and then we'll, we'll walk through it slowly. We're in Psalm chapter 3. And it starts like this. And it looks like if you have a print Bible or on your phone or something, it looks like there's a, a line here that kind of fits between where it says Psalm 3 and the actual body. Um, this was actually in the original Hebrew, but it's, it's like the precursor. So it's kind of the prologue to what's going on in the psalm. And it says this, a psalm of David when he fled his son Absalom. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. My glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies in the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. 
Now, this psalm, like many of the psalms, is oriented in kind of a way that it becomes prayerful. Uh, there's a big question mark, even in the original audience among the Hebrews, on how much of this was actual prayer, how much of it is sharing an idea. Um, and it's kind of a, a both-and situation in many cases of the psalms, where we have someone kind of orienting their, their voice towards God, but letting other people listen in to what's going on. So it's intended both to be something directed at God, I need your help, or um, you're amazing, or whatever, um, but also to try to get other people to, to listen and maybe make the connection to that similar to my story here, that's similar to my story now. So one of the things I want to do is I want us to take that perspective of listening in. And so that piece of paper is, is one way, one avenue for us to listen in to the Psalms. So I'm going to put the first stanza on the screen again. I'm going to talk about it. But as it's on the screen behind me while I'm talking about it, if there's a word or a phrase or a line or an idea that sticks out to you, I just want you to jot it down next to that number one or in that first section that you're writing. A Psalm of David when he fled his son Absalom. And he says, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Now, let me give you the situation that's going on here. Um, maybe, maybe not. Uh, I don't know uh, if you've heard of David. Uh, I imagine you have, even if you haven't been around the church often um, or much at all. David is this kind of like big historical figure among the Hebrews, right? He is the second king of Israel. Um, he's the one that God anoints over and above the first king in order to, um, in order to, to right the wrongs of the first king by the name of Saul. David is anointed before Saul is dead, and so it's really awkward in the kingdom to have two kings anointed at the same time. Saul ends up pursuing David, um, trying to murder him, and as it ends up, Saul ends up dead. David becomes king, and one of the things said about him, you've probably heard this before, is he is a man after God's own heart. Uh, it doesn't mean he was perfect. In fact, oftentimes we mistake um, someone in the scriptures, uh, some good feature of them, for them being perfect or becoming the hero of the story. That just isn't true. Um, he was still a, a pretty broken, fallible human being. Um, the hero of the story is still God, still the one who sustains and creates. David had a lot of flaws, character flaws, decision flaws, he made a lot of mistakes, and he paid for a lot of those mistakes. But also, in his life, in his experiences, much like us, other people around him did things that affected him, uh, that made his life more difficult. And one of those people was his son, he had, he had quite a few sons, but one of his sons named Absalom. Now, this story, um, if you want to go back and look at it, it's in uh, 2 Samuel. It starts in chapter 13 and goes all the way to chapter 17. It's a big, massive story. I encourage you, if you want some light reading about kings, I mean, if you, if you like Game of Thrones, you will love 2 Samuel. If they put it in, in like movie like fashion, like legitimate movie fashion, it would be more hor horrific and horrifying than than Game of Thrones. Like, there's no question. Like, it, it, is, it is nutty what goes on. Um, I'm going to give you just the tip of the iceberg on this storyline so you can understand why David writes this. He has now become king in Israel. He is now the one sitting on the throne um, over God's people. And his son, um, his son is this kind of like wonky character off to the side. He's there, but he's not highlighted yet. But you kind of get pieces of him kind of showing up. Well, there's, there's this whole situation, and this is part of like the character flawness of what's going on in, in this situation. Uh, David had multiple wives, um, which was not by design a healthy thing, um, which means he had kids um, that are kind of like, almost like step-siblings. And it just so happens that one of his, his sons ends up 
raping one of his daughters, stepdaughters. And, and the situation um, just goes off the rails really quickly. Absalom becomes knowledgeable of all this as another son, and he just kind of like ignores the whole thing. He decides it's, it's not worth addressing. He has the power to. He's, he's got the ability to make it right, but he just kind of lets the whole thing like try to just like die. Well, as that happens over a couple of years' time, Absalom gets really, really angry at his brother. And he ends up setting up this plot, um, much like the Red Wedding, to kill his, um, his brother. And he ends up doing it. He ends up killing his brother who had raped his sister. And, and David finds out about it, and he is just like torn up. Like, can you imagine being a father and your kids, not just like fighting, but raping and murdering one another? Like this, this is dark. This situation is, is way worse, like we talk about in Esther, way worse than we assume because we use you know, a simple word like rape and murder. But when you start thinking about the, the implications of that, it's real and it's, it's, it's just dark. And David is, is so torn up about this, he kind of lives in this like in-between moment of what do I do with Absalom now he's killed my son who raped my daughter? And he's, he's caught in this the situation where he's not sure exactly what to do, so he also kind of becomes immobilized. Absalom knows this isn't going to be healthy for him to stick around, and so he, he leaves Israel. And he goes to another nation state, another small nation state next to Israel, and he pleads to the king there and, and gets uh, like basically to become a refugee in this other kingdom. But as such, he, he gains a lot of power and prominence. And over the span of another couple of years, he starts thinking that maybe he ought to go back to Israel and take the throne from his father. His dad has shown that he's not uh, a good thinker. He's not willing to, to chase him down or do anything about his other brother who raped his sister. And so he decides to, it's incumbent upon him to go ahead and, and go back to Israel and take the throne from his dad. And he does. He, he, he stages a brilliant coup in Israel, a coup that, that was all smoke and mirrors. Um, but people started believing it, so much so that their allegiance switches over to Absalom. And what happens is it unwedges David from the throne, and he's now put on the run with just a few thousand supporters who have left the capital with him. Now, as he leaves the capital, um, he is driven out in the wilderness, and he's, he's in this in-between moment where he's no longer sitting on the throne. His son has taken over. He believes the smoke and mirrors, like everyone else does, that all of Israel has turned against him. And then we get this psalm. We get this moment in the life of David where he writes this first stanza, this first stanza, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Now, I can't remember the last time I was driven away from my throne by my son who's trying to murder me, and I was out in the wilderness thinking thoughts like this. It's been a while. But man, I've had things similar to this, where it feels like the world is stacked up against me, where it feels like things are not going the way I expected, when I'm not confident the people around me are still on my team, on my side, love me, care about me, want me in their world. I bet you have too. You see, this moment isn't written because we would all experience the exact same moment. This, this psalm is introducing the whole anthology of the psalms because we experience this as a very human situation over and over and over again in life. We find these dark places when other people's decisions affect us. 
when our own decisions affect us. And we're left without any confidence that anything is going to turn our direction or go our way. And what David examples here in this writing, in this psalm, in this piece of poetry, in this prayer, is he directs his attention at God. And he asks kind of this this honest question statement, how how many are against me? I mean, it's, it's both a question and a statement. He knows everyone is against him. And he puts it in front of God and just like lets it hang there. I think for a lot of us, myself anyway, that's not my first reaction when things aren't going my way. My first reaction isn't to go to God and, and just name it, to name the situation as this is, this is painful and brutal and it doesn't feel like things are how they're supposed to be. People, I, I, don't, I don't name to God that I think people don't like me anymore and are, are not going to be a friend or be on my team or on my side. And David does. And from there, he progresses. And he, he progresses with this word, but. Now, there's all these jokes about big butts in the Bible, um, but I won't make any of those. These are really important. When things switch, when, when you see this, this contrastive idea, it's really important for us to, to just be aware that whoever's writing, for whatever reason, is contrasting what they just said with what's coming. The situation is dark. I feel alone. I don't know if people are ever going to be on my team again, but, but you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. See, David here just lays both of these situations out at once. Things are not going the way I expected. And yet I remain convinced that you are my source, my protector, that you are the one who's taking care of me. There's all these names for God in the Old Testament, um, and a lot of them come through languages um, like um, like Latin and, and German into English. Um, and it's not the way you would say it if you were going back and, and saying this directly out of the Hebrew, but, but one of the ones that has stuck with me for years um, since I was a child, listened to this in church, is this, this phrase, Jehovah Jireh. You heard that before? Jehovah Jireh. It means um, God my provider. And there's all these times in the Old Testament where that phraseology is brought up, um, where there's this, this idea of God being the source, the provider, the protector, the shield, the one that takes care of his people. David here is left with one option he feels like, to go to that place where he recognizes again who his real provider is. It's not his kingdom. It's not his power. It's not his position. It's not whether he's in uh, good standing with people, whether the popularity poll is on his side or not whether he's sitting in the throne or whether he's out in the wilderness, those things are not the source of provision or the shield. God is. God is provider. He is the one who is taking care of him. Now, I think that's important for us. I think that's important for us in order to be able to 
to in our own situations, in our own life, make that same kind of contrast. But no matter how dark this moment is, no matter how painful it is, that doesn't change the fact on who God is. He is still a protector. He is still a shield. The third stanza. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Now again, if there's something that sticks out in this line, jot it down, write it down. But essentially what's going on here as David progresses through this prayer is he, he smashes these two ideas together. Things are dark, God is still my provider, and now they coexist with one another. This is the part, I think, of life where we really struggle. I think in, in like theoretical terms, like we can acknowledge things are hard. We can even acknowledge theoretically God's in control. But then there's this moment when we, we have to come to a, a spot of whether we actually believe those two things can coexist at the same time. That through the pain and difficulty of whatever the circumstances you're going through, is God still the one who's going to take care of you? And David moves it into extremely practical space. I go to sleep and I wake up and I only do it because he takes care of me. Because God is the one who sustains me, who protects me. He's the one. Even though things are dark, even though tens of thousands of people are coming after me, you are the one in control. Now the story um, for uh, David and Absalom, it gets darker uh, than, it, than it even began. David is out in the wilderness um, and literally has about 10,000 men, fighting men on his side. Um, and they're down by the Jordan River, so about 14 miles from Jerusalem, down this massive uh, downhill slope, um, dropping about 6,000 feet from Jerusalem to the bottom of the Dead Sea Basin. And, and they're down there, and they're encamped, and they get, they get the message that there's about 45,000 troops marching from Jerusalem down towards them. And so they strategically make a decision to move into this, this wooded area. It's called the Woods of Ephraim, or the Forests of Ephraim. And they move in this forest because it's a very dangerous territory. Um, people don't inhabit it at this point. It's not been clear-cut. Um, it's difficult to wage a war in there. So they kind of go into this like, guerrilla warfare mode. And, and as such, David tells his fighting men, um, if we happen to win this fight, don't kill my son. Keep him safe. He's still my son. And the, the war, the battle ends up uh, ensuing in the woods of Ephraim. And because they have taken tactical advantage of the woods themselves, David and his, his, um, his men win the fight. And it comes to a head, that's a bad turn, it's kind of a pun, it comes to a head when Absalom gets his hair stuck in a tree and his donkey walks off leaving him suspended in the tree. And he's left dangling there, vulnerable. And David's men come upon him and, and they have to make a critical decision. If we kill their leader, this whole battle ends right now. David told us not to, but we'll do it anyway. So the leader of David's men end up right there and then killing Absalom, leaving him dangling in the tree with javelins in his chest. The next group of, of warriors come along, they find him, they throw their javelins in, they cut him down, and they bury him right there in the middle of the woods. David loses a son over this. Thousands of men lose their lives over this the whole situation evaporates. It just deteriorates into pandemonium and chaos and pain. 
because of the decisions people are making in real time along the way. And it's in light of those kinds of circumstances that David is saying, it's you, God, who sustains me. It's you who takes care of me. Even though the world is crushing me right now, I can see that the world is not providing for me like you are. So David says this, Arise, Lord. Deliver me, my God. Strike my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. I think this is a powerful moment in this psalm, in this prayer. David is done setting the stage for for the situation, for his pain, for what he believes to be true about God. And he makes a request. Now, this gets people off sometimes, uh, just gets them off track a little bit. When when we look at God or a phrase like this, and we see someone making a demand of God, and this is an outright demand from David. He, He is, as a human being, looking at God, shaking his fist, saying, do something. This is bad. This hurts. It's painful. I'm in danger of losing my life. Would you just wake up? Arise. Defend me. Deliver me. Strike my enemies down. Now, yes, it's a command. But I don't think there's any point at which David is under any kind of disillusionment that he's not in control of the situation. In fact, that's the very reason why he's writing the psalm. Because he's not in control. And he goes to the one who is in control, and he makes a request, a very honest request. Do something. Change the situation. Fight the fight I can't fight for myself. The things are a mess, and I need your help. Wake up. Arise. I think this is a very appropriate position for us to be in in our relationships with God, individually and as a group of people that we can make requests to God and we don't have to be shy about it. We can name the reality of the pain we're in and say, I need help. God, please do something about it. And I don't know why, I don't know how, I don't know where, but we get off track oftentimes as American Christians. We go one way or the other. Either we become God's puppeteer and we believe we can make him do anything we want or we never ask him anything at all. And I think what we see here in this psalm, what we see in David is someone who strikes that balance really well who can name that I can't defend myself. I can't do for myself what needs to be done. And so he goes to God honestly and makes a request. Arise. Take care of me. Protect me. I can't do it on my own. Now, I don't have, I don't think, um, any legitimate enemies right now who are trying to murder me. Um, if you are in that situation, you just give me some heads up before you try to act on that situation. But the reality is that this isn't the common situation we live in, in our culture, in our time, in our, in our geopolitical situation that we're in. But it certainly feels like, quite often, the circumstances of life aren't just stacked against us, that they're trying to destroy us. I'm not trying to externalize all the problems that I have in my life or the problems you have in your life. I'm just simply saying, life is hard. And at times, it's so difficult. It feels like an army that's invading trying to kill us. 
And maybe today you're not in one of those situations. You're not in a spot where things are painful or things are just falling apart. But I, I can almost guarantee you looking across this audience at the age of the audience, that every single one of you has had something similar to that happen in your world. And if you haven't, one's coming. There'll be points in your life again where things go off the rails. Where more than just being difficult and hard, they'll be outright oppressive and hostile to you as a human and your existence. The question becomes, where do you go when that happens? What are you going to do when life goes off the rails? Who are you going to ask for help when it feels like no one is on your side? See, I think what we see in David is this beautiful picture of a real human who's really struggling and knows exactly where to go for help. Now this last line, this last stanza, it's only a half a line, or half a stanza. Um, in fact, this happens a lot in, in the writings of the Hebrews. Um, there's this repetitive kind of nature to it, and there's this, this thread that finds its way through a lot of the Hebrew poetry we find in the Psalms, and even a lot of the, the, the writings in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, where the writers go back to one of these central ideas of who they are as people, the central faith ideas, which is what, what David does here. He moves it right back to this big idea. And he says, from the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. That's his way of basically signing off this prayer, saying, that's what I'm left with, is acknowledging that my deliverance comes from one place. And he names the only source of blessing for God's people. The only source is God himself. Now, this psalm, we've taken a moment to walk through it. I've asked you to be a bit reflective. Uh, perhaps you have, perhaps you haven't. Maybe you're fooling me with your pen. Maybe you're doodling, drawing pictures, and that's legit. I'm cool with that. But here's what I'm going to ask of you this week. Now, I've never made a statement like this before in my life, so if it doesn't come true, I'm not a fortune teller. But I think that in the next seven days, you are highly likely to have a circumstance come up in your world. Maybe it's not people trying to murder you. Maybe it's not end of your life kind of thing. But something difficult. Something challenging. Something that risks disturbing the peace of your world, simplicity of your world, the direction of your world, your commitment to Christ, maybe. I'd like you to have this piece of paper at hand. And if it's not the paper itself, maybe it's the text of this scripture. Maybe you don't have a Bible app on your phone and you need to download one. Or maybe you do and you need to open it. And this week, when things get tough, as they most likely will, the reflection on this psalm just might be helpful. That one stage of, of David's development, one stage of him processing his own difficult situation, might prove to be helpful in your world. Now, I know some of the feelings you're probably having right now. Some of you are like, yeah, that's cool. I'm putting that right in my journal. I'm good. You actually have a journal. Fantastic. I don't have a journal, so I don't have a spot to put it like that. Others of you are like, this makes me kind of want to gag the thought of doing something like this. All I have to say, whatever end of the spectrum you're at and your spectrum you're on regarding 
how you feel about this psalm or about moving it into your own life, appropriating it, and trying to wrestle with it as you do with your own experiences, is what do you have to lose? What do you have to lose in trying a healthier way at dealing with your life's problems? I hear over and over and over again from people. I meet with a lot of people. I have a lot of coffee and a lot of beer and a lot of food talking to people. And I hear over and over and over again that people's pain, their situation, their difficulty just seems to stick around a lot longer than they expect. And then I start asking questions like, okay, so what are you doing? How are you engaging? How are you taking some responsibility for your situation? And people, you know, often people tell me, I'm, you know, reading this book and I've got this therapy and I'm doing this thing. And those things are fantastic and good and they are healthy oftentimes. Other times people tell me, you know, I'm just kind of waiting for it to end. I'm just kind of sitting here, waiting. And even worse, people tell me often, here's what I'm doing, and it's readily identifiable that it's not a healthy thing they're choosing to do. They're coping with it in a negative way or a destructive way. So I think a lot of us, we have these issues, these pains in life, and we're not willing to go to the source, the one who knows us, the one who designed us, the one who cares for us, the one who protects us, the one who is our Jehovah Jireh, provider, shield, protector. So what do you have to lose in trying something a little bit healthier in your life as you deal with life's pain and difficulties? I'm going to ask you, if you would, pray with me. I would like to pray a blessing over you. We don't always do it this way. Um, Sometimes we just invite you to pray alongside, but I'm going to pray directly a blessing over you, if that's all right. So let's, let's pray together. God, as we, as we end our time in the scriptures, uh, looking at the life of David, a moment of it anyway, and as we reflect upon his experiences, God, may we be the kind of people who deal with the pain and tragedy and difficulty of life differently than we have in the past. May we look to you for provision and security, identity, and hope. God, today, may may we reorient ourselves in the midst of life's difficulties to you and what you're doing. And God, as that happens in us, may we be the kind of people who humbly point towards you through our lives as we find peace and hope grace and love and joy. And we pray for our city. We pray for our neighbors. We pray for our friends and our family members. The God that they would see and know your goodness through our lives and through the lives of people around us and around them in a way that maybe they wouldn't when we're fighting on our own just to make our lives a little bit better. Help us. We love you. Pray in your name. Amen.